This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Even Better, A Guide to Winning in Life. And the author is Bill Ballister, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Good morning, Steve. How you doing? Well, it's an honor to have you here, the most winningest coach ever, 88% as gymnastics coach over a period of how many years were you a coach? Well, I coached for about 22 years. I, my last 10 years of coaching was at the University of Oregon, uh, like I said, was for 10 years. So through that time, you learned some lessons about life, obviously, because we all know coaches come and go, but some coaches, they move all over the place, and they're always winning, and others just seem to never quite make it. And so your book is filled with nine principles of winning teams, and we're going to find out about your research and all the coaches that you interviewed. But first of all, Give us a little bit more background on yourself, Bill. Well, well thanks. Steve, I, I started out like a lot of us uh, uh, without any idea what I wanted to do in my life. And uh, In fact, I ended up in college more to play and to have fun rather than to study anything. And One day I was walking by the gym and uh, saw an open trampoline and decided to go in and jump on it. And, and after about an hour, I realized I wasn't alone, and uh, the bottom line on all that, my coach-to-be, Bill Mead, uh, invited me to try out for gymnastics, and actually at that point, I had direction in my life. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be a highly successful coach. In fact, I kid about it. I told people I wanted to be the best men's gymnastic coach in the country, and Probably in reality, I wanted to be the best men's gymnastic coach in the world, and that was certainly a big dream for somebody who'd never even been involved in sports. So that started everything, and that's how I got going in coaching and uh, and was fortunate enough after 10 years coaching in Illinois high schools, which was the premier uh, gymnastic area in the, in the country at the time. I was fortunate enough to come to University of Oregon where I got a chance to coach not only great collegiate gymnasts, but a, a few international teams as well. So out of that, out of that, as you look back on all of it and you see the big picture in life and, and know that there are true principles, doesn't matter uh, what you do with them, they all apply. And so along the way, how did you end up consulting with companies? Now, you went from the coach you know, on a team, and then in the in the sports world, then you went to become a coach on a business team. Yeah, well, that was a change that was uh, very uncomfortable initially. My dream to be a great gymnastic coach was shattered uh, many years ago when the university, like many universities, dropped men's gymnastics. And then for the next five-year period, 
I, without a dream, I had no idea what to do. And again, uh, over a cup of coffee one day, talking with a friend of mine, we began to notice and have a conversation about sports again, that some coaches seem to win no matter where they go, and some don't seem to win. And we wondered why, and we wondered if there was a similarity among winning coaches. And and one more thing that uh, that I'd like to add here, and that leads to the business. We noticed over the years uh, that in most universities there w- weren't a whole lot of formal programs about coaching and uh, and how to provide leadership to teams. So uh, along with our question, are there similarities among highly successful coaches, came if there is, could we create a model from the world of sports and athletics to take into the world of business, as it turned out, and government later. So anyway, that's how we got going, and we decided that, well, let's find out. So we ended up spending almost five years interviewing some of the nation's best coaches. Now, just for the sake of of, of clarity, these coaches came from 11 different sports, both men and women, and from coaches that coached little kids and age group sports all the way up to professional coaches. So we did find, yes, there is similarities, or there are similarities among these highly successful leaders. And yes, these same principles, these same basic truths that apply to sports, apply to all teams. Now, not only did we learn that they apply to business and government teams, they apply to family teams. And uh, once while interviewing a very successful woman here in the West Coast, uh, she interrupted me, which frequently leaders will do, and they do that because they want to learn more about what you've learned rather than tell me what they know. But anyway, uh, she said, you know, Bill, you're going to find out, I think, that these same principles that apply to sports leadership and sports team building and apply to government and businesses will also apply to families. And I'd never thought of it that way and, of course, began to look in that in, in that way. And that's what the book, uh, you know, Steve, the, the, the hard part about this book was that I wrote this book about sports about winning in business, about winning in government, and about winning as a parent in terms of the leadership of your team. That was a difficult part. I was advised by many people, maybe I should have written four books, and each one separately. But, you know, we don't live our lives separately. It's segmented. We're all on teams. We're on national teams. We're on family teams. We're on our work teams. So uh, that was a real challenge, and that's why and how I wrote even better. Well, you've broken the, your book down into five parts. Uh, the first one is called The Journey to Winning in Life. Part two is Leadership Model for Winning Teams. And then three, The Nine Principles of Winning Teams. Four is How to Solve Problems. Five, Tools for Life. Well, let's back up and look at these nine principles. We obviously don't have enough time to talk about all of them, but to give everyone just a... a uh, peek into the real basic bottom line principles that really govern any aspect of life. Let's just start with principle one. You call it the double win. Yeah, and you know that was one we struggled with. It, the bottom line on it is, is if you're a leader of a team, and that's what this is, is about team building. Whether you're building a team, a family team, or a business team, or a sports team, they're all the same. 
And the first basic principle is is that there's a direct correlation between the investments you put into your team members and the return you get. Now, it's easy with children. When our children are born, we spend a huge amount of time. We have to teach them what to do, what not to do, how to talk, everything. And there's a direct correlation between the investment of time that parents put in and the outcome later on. So that's the first principle. And, again, it's, it's not profound, but it is obvious. If you want to win, you have to invest in the growth of your players, of, of your children, or of your business associates. Well, we have to change our thinking. You mentioned that in part one. You talk about this scarcity to abundance. What what are you talking about there? But but I think we all know if we're going to succeed and if we're not succeeding at that moment in time, something is wrong, so we have to change. So what's this scarcity to abundance? Wow, that's a that's a good one. I An analogy I make, which most of us are familiar with, is uh, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty thinking. And I I relate to abundance thinking or scarcity thinking. There are some people in this world that think there's enough of everything to go around for everyone. And there are some people that think that if I don't get it and he does, then I lose. Now, let me bring this back a minute uh, to sports. It's easier for me to use those analogies. In sports, we frequently talk about winners and losers. Now, what I'm suggesting here is there doesn't have to be losers. Uh, Scarcity thinking means that if you win, I lose, or if you get it, I don't get it. And abundance thinking means that we can all win in some way. Now, I don't know, Steve, if we want to go into it here. Please be aware of the fact that I think winning on Saturday is important. When I say winning on Saturday, that's that's a traditional win-loss kind of a situation we have in sports where there's a winner and there's a loser. And I think that's a very important part. The people that are leaders of teams and business and families and even in sports do not have their primary reason uh, for existing is winning. Their primary reason we learned from all this research was to make a difference in someone else's lives, to help them out to help them grow and learn. Now, the interesting thing about it is if we can help our children, if we can help our employees, we can help our players on our teams to learn and develop as human beings as well as the skills they need to function in the world, the byproduct is winning. That's the funny part about it. It, uh, it will happen. Business the same way. You invest in the growth and the development of your employees, not only in terms of the skills they need, but invest in their growth as human beings, and the byproduct will be a bottom line, and the business will make money and be successful. Now, I don't like to talk a lot about politics, and I'm certainly not political, but it's the same in government. When people invest in the people in their country, and these people become educated and understand what the value is to be a part of the country, then they perform better, they're more productive, and as a result, a a country will prosper. We're going to go back to the nine principles of winning teams. Uh, We've already talked about principle number one, the double win. And then, of course, two is adaptation, three, alignment, four, contribution, five, responsible freedom. Tell us about responsible freedom. Oh, you are picking the good ones. Well, (laughs) the good news is that every team that's ever existed goes through this. It's how many rules and how many laws should we have as opposed to not? 
having laws or rules. In fact, in families, sometimes we even have two parents that will argue this. Well, I think there's too many rules because if you have too many rules, you don't have the ability to, uh, to create, you don't have the freedom to explore, and yet too few rules in a, in a team will result in chaos and people not working together. So responsible freedom simply means that within all teams, you have to have certain guidelines and rules that you follow. And the players on the team or the people in the business have to agree to them. But then you also want to give the players and these people, your children, the freedom to be able to expand these rules and to test these rules. And you constantly want to be expanding these responsibilities by giving them freedom to move within the confines of this of the responsibilities. Now, golly, that's not nearly as complicated as I made it sound. It's pretty simple. All people on teams need guidelines that they understand and adhere to and follow. But these guidelines want to be as loose as possible, in my mind, to give them the freedom to do things on their own. Number six is integrity, seven, positive learning cycle, eight, the balance of extremes, and number nine, progressive mastery. And then in part four, how to solve problems, you ask this big question. Is there a secret to winning? That's everybody wants to know that one. Well, you know, when it boils down to it, and I gave a lot of thought to that because I was frequently asked that question as I went around the country, and people say, come on, Bill, give us a 10-minute version. You've talked to all these coaches. You've learned how to win. How can you do it? How can you tell me in 10 minutes? And, of course, as you've already noticed with our conversation today, <laughs> for me to do anything in 10 minutes is almost impossible because so, I like to talk. Anyway, uh, the secret becomes fairly simple, uh, and not to do, but to understand. You have to decide what it is you want to do. What is it that you really are trying to accomplish? And that's your win. And that came for me as a dream. My dream was to be the best gymnastic coach in the world. Now, that was my dream. That was my goal. Then I started working backwards. Back, well, how do I do that? And, and then I decide, well, where am I now? Here's where I am in terms of getting this dream. And then I began to identify the problems that stood between me and where I wanted to be. And ultimately, you solve the problems. And he who solves the most problems wins. Now, that's the simple answer. Now, that, that's very, very broad and very, very generic. But ultimately, sometimes we have to go back. You know, it's interesting what we learn from these great coaches and what I learned from the great leaders they learn how to simplify everything. Now, it's interesting to me, the analogy, again, in sports, uh, this is football season. You talk about the freshmen. You read about what the coaches say. You, read, you hear about what the freshmen have to say. And when they get in, particularly in college, everything, the game's so much faster. And uh, they're not accustomed to it, even though they may have been stars in high school. And what happens is in time, by the time they're later in the year or sophomores, they say things like, guys, the game has slowed down. Well, the game hasn't slowed down, but they've been again to understand it. It becomes simpler for them to comprehend. And, and of course, that's, that's true 
with all of us in life. Uh, and and the, the simplicity that I'm referring to here in terms of solving problems, you got to identify them, and then you got to solve them. And the more you can solve, the closer you'll get to your dream, and the sooner you'll get there. I'd like to finish on this last as last part of your book. It's uh, it's in the How to Solve Problems section, but I, I it just kind of grabbed my attention. I think it would anyone because it says the title of this section or this chapter: Why, 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 why? <laughs> so we've got we've got about a minute. So tell us about why, 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 why. Well, okay, that, that was an answer I got. When I talked to a young man from Japan who had been highly successful, he had trained educationally all over the world, Was he came to the United States to take over a, a mid-level mid mid management job. And I asked him, well, what can you tell me that's different that you've learned when studying in Spain and certainly in Japan and other parts of the world about how to solve problems? And he answered me with just that. Why, 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 why? And I, you know, well, my question immediately back to him was why? And uh, so he began to explain to me, and uh, again, I'm going to really make it short and would encourage people to take a look in the book. Uh, I don't mind, you know, there's nothing in the book that I wouldn't share with you now or share with anybody on the telephone uh, but I would encourage you to read it because I've had a chance to develop it and have it edited. But the the story, the bottom line is, is they they learned in a major company uh, in Japan, and of course we've all learned that since. Is that don't ask why just one time when a problem happens. Uh, ask why at least five times. And again, I'm going to go through this real quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope. Uh, this had to do with an optical company, about a half-billion-dollar company. So it was a major optical company in the world. And they were having problems with the lenses not being up to specifications. And so they said, well, why? Well, what they did is they went to this machine and to this station where all the errors seemed to be happening, and they learned that uh, the machine was out of tolerance, the bit. And then instead of just fixing that machine, they said, well, why? This was the second why. Well, they've learned that, that uh, the reason it was out of tolerance is because the motor that turned the bit that made these lenses was not functioning properly. Well, why? You know, they could have stopped there and replaced the motor. Well, the reason is because they had done away with their maintenance program. And again, why? Well, they did that because they weren't making the profits. Well, why? And then they began to look at marketing. They began to look at the research that's being done, who they were selling it to, and found out that they were not marketing it to the right group of people. They're buying the most glasses. And this process continued until they literally changed an entire company because they, they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they ask why at least five times. So that's what that's about. And so what I've encouraged people to do, we usually, when we have a problem within a team, our first reaction is why, and we frequently stop because some person made a mistake, including ourselves. And then we function as if that's true. What this the story is about 
is asked at least five times why. Now, I don't know if that's way too long a story to tell you why, why, Stephen. <laughs> no, that explained it perfectly, and it makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> In fact, I was thinking about a number of different uh, situations that I've been involved with. I'm going to ask the why question many more times and see if we can get to the bottom of things. That just makes a whole lot of sense. Even better, A Guide to Winning in Life. That's the title of the book, and we've been listening to Bill Ballister. He is the author and the most winningest coach ever. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, well, iUniverse, of course, uh, published the book for me. That's one source. Amazon has it, Barnes & Noble. Um, Gosh, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, now it's everywhere. Yeah, you can yeah. I mean, I think so. Anywhere. I think it's available. Sure. Go to the internet. Look at Bill Ballister. Even better, and I'm sure there'll be somebody there who'll tell you how to find it. That's for sure. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Really been a pleasure and an honor to have you with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to to share what I do know, and. Um, and certainly appreciate the opportunity to visit with you, Steve. Thanks a lot. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lighten Up America, Odds and Not-So-Fat Ends of Weight Management. And the author, Dr. Lisa Clark, and Dr. Clark joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Clark. Hello, Steve. Thank you for having me on. 
Well, and what I love about this book, which is not a diet book, everyone, we want to clear the, the table of that right away, but lighten up, America, and let's, let's have a little humor about it, too, because who wants to talk about working out and diets? And that all sounds right. scary to most people, right? It does, and it's a subject that uh, a lot of people tend to uh, not want to discuss when they come in the office. So... It's, you know, I started writing the book to educate people, but then I realized, you know, this, this subject needs more attention. This needs to be presented in a different way. And so that's how I came up with the concept of Lighten Up America, which sort of has a double meaning, right. you know, lose the pounds, but also with a serious subject, I think we can take uh, some humor and uh, educate people at the same time. And it's, you know, it's the type of book that you can just, well, it's kind of like the one-minute manager. It's a short book. It, it gets right, right to the subject matter. It focuses, and it's all about motivation and help us to change our thinking. Well, before we get into the details, tell us a little bit about your background, doctor, and why the sudden urge to write a book. You're busy enough. Yes, sir. Well, I was born in Toronto, uh, 1966. So I just revealed my age there, but um, I ended up uh, starting college in Montreal, Canada or Quebec, and ended up uh, not being able to deal with those cold winters. So um, I moved to Louisiana and played tennis, uh, college tennis there for a while, and then decided while I was an undergrad that I was uh, interested in medicine. So uh, while I was waiting to get into medical school, I completed a master's degree and ended up at LSU Medical School for four years in New Orleans and then uh, was picked to do a residency at Tallahassee Memorial Hospital, uh, which I loved, had excellent training there, um, and then relocated to Destin with my husband at the time. He's still the same husband, but um, <laughs> we were married at the time, is what I meant to say. And we live here with our two kids, and I've got uh, private practice. Weight management is one of the subjects that I'm uh, passionate about. So many people come into you and say, look, I don't eat that much. In fact, I haven't hardly had anything to eat, and why do I keep gaining weight? Steve, that's my favorite question. That people, the, the two things are, I never eat anything. Why am I not losing weight? and it has to be my thyroid. Mm. And I usually chuckle because I've heard this, these statements hundreds of times over the last 15 years. Answering question number one, I don't eat that much, but I can't lose weight or I keep gaining weight. And the education of understanding how many calories you're putting in your body is where this starts. And much like the book, uh, I think it was called The Road Less Traveled. It says life is difficult. Losing weight is difficult. It's not easy, and it takes work. And tracking the amount of calories that you take in um, is so important to understanding where the calories are coming from. Because mm -hmm. if you didn't eat anything, you would die. So when people say to me, you know, I don't eat anything. Well, you know, you've got to be eating something because... <laughs> yeah. It's, it's impossible. Um, so that's where the education usually starts in my office is 
trying to get them hooked up with a, an app uh, or a website, uh, and it's it's been made much easier today with the uh, with technology for them to track their calories. And it is a very eye-opening experience. Those, those patients that will actually do it come back to my office and bring in an honest uh, journal of food calories are amazed at where the calories are coming from. And it's, it doesn't stop there. They realize that this is something they're going to have to do for the rest of their lives is uh, track their intake, much like balancing a checkbook. If you quit balancing a checkbook, you're going to bounce a check. And mm-hmm. if you quit tracking your calories, you're going to start losing or gaining weight again. So that, that is, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of, of that as step number one. Calories in, calories out. And, of course, with that comes this dreaded word that nobody wants to deal with, exercise. Exercise. Topic number two, which is so important. Um, you know, you have to find out, I find out when a patient's come into my office, I, I, I sit down and I'll ask them, you know, have you exercised before? And a good number of them, uh, will say no. I mean, maybe in high school, you know, or maybe in elementary school, they played soccer or, or something, but a huge number of them will say, no, I, I've, I never really have exercised. And so those are the people that I, I need to spend a little more time with trying to find out what kind of exercise they would enjoy. Do they have access to gyms? Uh, do they have the money to pay for a trainer? Do they live in an area where they can walk or run outside? And, and many physicians will leave the patient with, okay, you know, leave, leave the office and go exercise. Well, to so many people, that means so many different things. And the chapter I have written on exercise is, is called Exercise with a Purpose. Uh, we all know what the purpose of exercise is, is to keep our hearts healthy and, and manage our body weight. But exercising with a purpose really follows a more structured approach to exercise. When we were kids, and when I look at my kids today, they play in soccer teams, volleyball teams, cross country. They have a workout time. They're at their workout at that time. They show up to their meets, and so there's a, there's a goal to what they're doing. And one thing I like to uh, start people out thinking about is goal setting, setting some goals with your exercise. And it can be something as simple as, you know, in eight weeks, I'm going to run a 3K in my local town. And so I'm going to carve out 15 minutes a day to start walking and my goal at the end of the eight weeks is to complete that 3K or 5K or whatever it is they decide to do. That, I have found, has really helped people commit to exercise. It is like kind of a part-time job. When you, when you see uh, something at the end, the, the, the 5K you may run, the tennis tournament you may play, something like that, you're working toward a goal. And so to kind of bring us back to where we were as kids, uh, I think is important. And it sets examples, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it sets examples for our kids. If we exercise and we set goals, our kids are going to end up doing the same thing. 
and how important that is today with the obesity epidemic. And we may not have a weight problem right now. There are, I guess, a few people who don't, but uh, I mean, the percentage is obviously very high now that are overweight and obese. It's uh, epidemic, but at the same time, everyone goes through different stages, so everyone's probably going to face it somewhere. Somewhere, yes. And, you know, there's a pa those patients that come in, they're always, you know, seem like they look fit. Um, and there are, there's a majority of, uh, excuse me, a minority of people that are able to stay thin throughout their life and, and never struggle with it. But when women hit menopause, and men sort of hit that same age around 50, most women will put on about 10 pounds through the middle. And it's frustrating, and they hate it. And when they've never had to deal with weight before, all of a sudden, they're faced with a problem. Why, is, why am I gaining weight? And so often what I hear from those women are, it has to be my thyroid, um, which in a minority of cases it may be, but uh, that is the particular time in life, if you've never struggled with weight, that I see it happen. But, you know, and, and then for men it's a little bit different at, at how we look at weight gain. It may be a more gradual process with them, but they seem to be able to get it off quicker than women. And I think it's because men are able to make those short-term commitments. Me, those short -term commitments. I'm going to lose weight in 10 pounds, or excuse me, I'm going to lose 10 pounds in a month. And they stick with it, they do it, but then they're done with it, and then the weight comes back on. Uh, and then there's the postpartum women who've never struggled, and then all of a sudden have 20 extra pounds, can't lose it. Uh, and those women need counseling the same same way that everybody else does. Now, how do I get this weight off? And it goes right back to Chapter 1, tracking the calories. Mm -hmm. So that comes back to the big question that we all have tried just about everything. Why don't diets work? Why don't diets work? Because they're diets. This is, this, is the, this is what fascinates me when I go to the grocery store. Every, you know, almost every week there's a new diet of them. Lose 10 pounds by Labor Day. You know, uh, mm -hmm. flatten out that belly with certain foods. Um, diets don't work because they are short-term answers. And the reason they do work short-term is because people have a goal. And they'll say, you know, by three months I want to have lost this much weight with Weight Watchers. And they'll do it. And then they'll go back to eating the same foods that they've always ate. And so that's why it's so important to understand, you know, please, I beg people, please eat the foods you like to eat. You know, most of us eat fairly healthy, but it's finding out where those calories are from um, to maintain a steady diet that is not necessarily uh, geared to losing weight. And it's pretty easy to understand calories today because every food has a, a chart on it and it can help us understand a, a serving gives you so many calories. Sure, and I love that. And I love that uh, a lot of restaurants are, are now listing that and I think it, it really um, 
sort of underscores the point that I make about how important calories are because restaurants and, uh, you know, other play, grocery stores are listing caloric contents. And so it really, it really tells me that people are finally starting to catch on, that it's, it's not dieting that works. It is the calorie, understanding the calories and understanding them for life. That's, that's where the success comes in. Well, what about motivation? How do we do that? That's uh, uh, part three in your book talks about motivate thyself. Motivate thyself. Well, that part in the book comes after I've talked about how to learn to track calories, the, the, the purpose of exercise, uh, the different stages we go through. And when you've when, and this is what I see in my office. When patients have lost five, maybe ten pounds, and they get that positive reward, they're so much more likely to continue in a forward motion. They feel good about themselves, you know, and so it's a, it's a positive reward situation. And if they need to come in once every week, you know, for a pep talk, so be it. If you do better in a group, so be it. But understand that this really comes down to a choice, and you have to keep yourself motivated by, by setting goals and making exercise uh, part of your life, carving out time, making your family aware that this is important to you, um, you know, letting everybody know at 6.30, you know, this is my workout time for 30 minutes. And the family kind of gets used to that routine. So, you know, motivating yourself helps motivate other family members. Uh, motivating yourself can help motivate somebody at the office. And, and then it comes back, and then you get re-motivated. So it, it all does come down to a situation where you have to continue to set goals, Continue to understand that if you don't stick with tracking the calories and exercising, that the weight will come back on. And, and of course, it does so many times. And people come back in, and we, you know, we start over. And that's okay. It's okay for for it not to work the first time or the second time. Um, you know, I see a lot of people struggle with quitting smoking, and it's okay. You know, if you fail the first time, uh, then you'll succeed the second time. And I think, you know, it's important to have a physician that is supportive of that because so many physicians get discouraged with patients when they come in and they've gained weight back or they haven't quit smoking. And so finding somebody, I think finding a physician who is motivating and uh, understands you know, how difficult this is for so many people is important. Well, we just can't, I guess, uh, just make excuses anymore. We just got to do the things that you're advocating. It all makes sense. And this book, Lighten Up America, a real short book, kind of like the One Minute Manager, takes us right into some real basic common sense kinds of things that just make sense. Odds and Not-So-Fat Ends of Weight Management, Dr. Lisa Clark. Tell us how to get your book. Yeah, Steve, it's, you can currently purchase it at Amazon.com uh, and just type in Lighten Up America, and it is currently the first book that should come up in Amazon.com. 
Um, you can, it can also be purchased at barnesandnoble.com. And uh, I am currently about to launch a national publicity campaign uh, on Monday. And I have a Facebook page, uh, which is under my author name, Dr. Lisa Clark. And, and we are currently working on a website as well, which is Great. Uh, www.lightenupamerica.com. Uh, and so there will be a lot of social media outlets for which people uh, can find out more information about the book and more about uh, I'm going to start doing a blog. And I think one of the, one of the things that I, I mm-hmm. love about that is that I can continue to motivate people after they've read the book. Well, very good, and thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Book, Why the First Books of the Bible Were Written and Who Were They Written For? And the author is Alan Wright, and Alan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alan. Yes, I'm here. Great to have you with us. You describe your book as an entertaining, informative, and fresh interpretation of the Bible's first books, Genesis through Second Kings. And of course, we'll get into what uh, is the extent of part one and part two, but before we get into this and this what you call an eye-opening account because of uh, you've discovered who composed the first books of the Bible and you want to share that in a much different way than most Christians and I'm sure others who study religion would profess that the Bible is all about. So let's find out about you first, Alan, and your background and why you did this. Well, uh, you know, my background, well, it began at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I was a history major and, and with a strong minor in science. And uh, we had, uh, this was back in the early 70s, where we were questioning everything. And, and uh, uh, it was a kind of an anti-establishment sort of attitude. The Vietnam War was unpopular. And we began to steer away from the traditional uh, take on things, uh, you know, be it the, the, the institution of even government, church, and this and that all came under question. 
Uh, you had the Watergate affair and all these things going on, and it was kind of a freedom of thought. And it, it was kind of an interesting time to be young and be in college, and, and it all basically had, it, had, had its roots from that time and from that experience. And uh, I went ahead and lived a, a good professional life. I've had three, you know, basically three separate careers. All were wonderful. And uh, I got to retire early. And uh, I, I took a graduate course at SMU in the ancient Near East. And, and it kind of began with that class. I wrote a paper that got published, which appears in part one of my book. And... Uh, my retirement began, and I had this publication, and I was involved in biblical study, and it was kind of a fun thing to do in my time, in my spare time, and all the extra time that I had. And the idea, all of a sudden, it, it kind of struck me as a flash, and I saw it from beginning to end. It just kind of swept through me, you know, a feeling that rushes through you. And, and I basically sat down and wrote my first draft from beginning to end, which is what you see. Now, I went back over and over two, three times fixing this, but all in all, my first draft isn't much different than the final draft. Well, you take us back in time to put everything in context. That's what is so unique about this. And you say mm -hmm. the first books of the Bible, uh, it is not about religion. It's about the Bible. Now, tell us what you mean by that. Right. Right. Okay. What it, what it is, if you, again, being a history guy, uh, uh, usually, if you take a look at people writing, uh, you know, they write something. Somehow, the backdrop of what is going on during the times they are living has an influence on it. Uh, in, in this case, uh, you had... Uh, this, this was about, oh, 200 years or so, or 100, 150 years or so after the, um, the, the, the loss of the northern tribes of Israel. There they, uh, they rebelled against the authority, the authority won, and what they did was exile the, the leaders, and they left the poor people just to kind of melt away, and that's what they did. Uh, they intermarried and went on and lived other lives, and... And the northern tribes just kind of uh, did exactly that, just kind of melted away into the surrounding cultures. Uh, along comes this, you know, the southern tribes, again, there was a rebellion uh, against Babylon. Again, the rebellion was crushed. Again, they were, uh, the leaders were um, exiled to Babylon, and the masses were, were left behind to uh, melt away. And this time, the people in Babylon wanted to, with that history, knowing the history of what happened to the northern tribes, wanted to take steps to prevent that from happening. They wanted to save their people. They wanted to hold on to their people. They wanted to hold on to their culture, hold on to their language. And they wrote Genesis through Kings 2. That was what they did. And I went about chapter through chapter through chapter uh, firming that uh, assumption up. And I, as I said, believe I, I make a, a good case for it. Uh, again, it's, it is, it's a secular interpretation. Uh, that's my background. 
Um, I'm, I'm not trying to invent anything or come out against this or that. It's just, you know, this is where my research led me. You talk uh, about, according to the legend, 70 wise and learned Hebrew scribe. They traveled to Egypt uh, after Greek-speaking Jews living in Egypt convinced an Egyptian leader to include the books of Moses in his library. Now that, oh, yeah, you know, okay, yes. We haven't, we yeah, haven't okay. heard about that before. Yeah, well, that that's you know, that that was something that uh, you, you read about in history at the universities, and that there, that there was this legend, you know, it it basically uh, stated that uh, they they wrote this translation, and and as as the as the book explains, uh, these learned men were put in separate rooms, each of them read it, and it all came back the same. So in other words, they're saying that the, the uh, that the writing is authentic and something that you can accept as well. Let's call it gospel. How's that? Because there are very few documents in Hebrew, original documents in Hebrew. Just a few scraps. Just a few scraps. But that Greek translation uh, is is what survived, and uh, and there's that legend behind it. I, I mean. People, biblical scholars, biblical people who, who, you know, love and enjoy the Bible, uh, appreciate that and um, and the fact that the work survived and they give due credit to the Greek translation, and therefore there has to be something magical about that for such a magical event to have occurred. You know, you had uh, these ancient Hebrew scripts that just disappeared, and you know they were written on scrolls and. And uh, uh, the fact that this survived is is uh, is a worthy note, and therefore the legend. In part one, you compare two of the Bible's most familiar tales. Of course, we all know about Noah and the ark and the flood, and then we all know the great story of uh, the uh, little boy David uh, yes, killing Goliath. Now, but uh -huh. you. Take some earlier ancient texts uh, to to give us uh, just to compare these. Uh, now, tell us about that part one. Okay, good good question. Interesting question too. Uh, there was an ancient text that survived. It was discovered in the 1860s in an archaeological dig. Uh, they discovered this text. Pretty much in full, there's some missing parts to it, but for the most part, we had the whole book, and it was titled The Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written in cuneiform, uh, which is a script that uh, the Hebrew script derived from all the other alphabets came from. It was the first, uh, cuneiform was the first alphabet, so to speak. And um, uh, in, in the, the, the cuneiform, uh, in cuneiform language was the, uh, the, um, Explanation or basically was the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood, the great flood that occurred in ancient Mesopotamia. And in that case, they built an ark, they did this, they did that. And if you read that alongside the Noah story, you will see the Noah story took, well, let's just say liberally, very liberally from that text, in some cases, word for word. And uh, so the, the, the Noah, what they did do is change the, the cause of the flood. Uh, the Mesopotamian uh, people said that the people were making too much noise and the gods couldn't sleep. Now, if you ever tried to take a nap in, uh, in Manhattan, New York, you will understand that. It's hard to sleep in Manhattan, especially if you're in a cheap hotel. 
And uh, so you can kind of understand where they're coming from there. But in this case, they changed the cause of the flood. Instead of disturbing the God's sleep, uh, the, the flood was brought forth because of the wickedness of the people. And God was angry with their wickedness. Mm-hmm. Wickedness meaning they just were kind of every man for themselves, uh, not very religious, not in tune with God and in, in, in this. And, and basically that's the, the point behind that. Did I explain that well enough? Yes, and then the shepherd boy David. Anything there? That... Yeah, the shepherd boy David. Now, there's another connection. Uh, you, there's a lot about the David story. But one part that we always remember, even as a kid, was the epic uh, single combat duel between David and Goliath. Okay, that's, 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 that's a favorite for all of us. And uh, a little boy with the Lord in his heart can take on a giant. Um, that story, uh, there was a very similar story between a single combat duel between uh, Gilgamesh and a Humbamba, this big, monstrous uh, opponent. And there, too, was the, uh, you know, the, the fight that is similar in very many ways, as I, as I laid out in my book, you know, both the, in translation, both the words that were spoken in that uh, translation and in, the, and in the Hebrew translation involving David and Goliath. You can see very similar parallels between the uh, single combat duel between David and Goliath and the single combat duel between uh, Gilgamesh and Humbaba. Uh, very similar very similar things there. In some cases, both uh, each, uh, both the giant and the uh, and the uh, human, uh, said pretty much the same things in slightly different ways. Um, so there, there was a clear, there's a clear parallel there between uh, the two texts. And I wrote a paper on that, and that was my first paper to be published was that comparison. And that was uh, published in uh, the Journal of Biblical Literature, and and uh, I did that while I was still in Dallas, and then I came up here and did my book. Part two of your book, where you analyze each book from Genesis to Second Kings. Now you you put it in historical back in a historical right. context, and and that is what's so important about this. Yeah, I I think that's the that's the key thing. Is to is to read these books, and figure out what is going on while these books were being written. What caused them to write these books? Did they just sit down and come up with this idea? Hey, let's just write this. Or did something prompt them to do it? And I argue that yes, they were prompted to do it. Uh, due to the circumstances that was facing the people. Uh, there was a huge setback for the Jewish people, and they basically set out to prevent another lost tribes of Israel scenario, and uh, they wanted to hold these people together during their exile, and, uh, and they pretty much succeeded. Well, they did succeed. Although there is, there is, you know, a few other little considerations. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and uh, ended the exile and this and that. But um, uh, you know, but pretty much, uh, the Bible has kept the Jewish people together ever since. And it's 
held in the highest esteem by Christians all over the world. So, no kidding. Yes, 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 yes. But both, both, both. Uh, Christianity is, 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 is an extension of Judaism in, in, in many respects. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there, there was just this slight uh, difference with the Christ figure, Jesus, which some of the more orthodox Jews didn't really buy into. And then, uh, even though they tried to work with one another, and, and you know there were a lot of uh, interlaps between the two, but they just basically broke. Uh, they just kind of kind of broke and went their own way. Of course, the fall of Rome had a lot to do do with that, and uh, the subsequent uh, chaos that resulted from that. But um, uh, it, uh, you know, it, you know that's that's the way I I, I see that. Um, but they, they, it's it's uh, both both books are are just remarkable in their own way. Um, I studied the Old Testament. I I'm, was born Lutheran, and I was born in the Christian tradition. But uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to that Old Testament a little bit more than I am the New Testament. Well, you're providing a new lens for us, a new paradigm. The author, Alan Wright, in his book titled The Book, Why the First Books of the Bible Were Written and Who Were They Written For. Alan, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's on, uh, it's, it's definitely on Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com under that name. Uh, you can contact iUniverse. Um, you can contact me. And, uh, but eventually uh, we have, uh, uh, there's some agents that are looking into it, and it could become uh, a book that you will find in all the bookstores in the not too distant future. Of course, you could get a, a digital copy. I'm an old, I'm an older guy. I like books. I have a hard time reading a digital copy, but the younger generation is a lot more used to it. Uh, I like having my book at hand and carrying that with me. But, uh, but it's in both print and digital. Thank you so much, Alan, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh well, thank you, and I enjoyed it. Those were great questions you asked iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.